All right, I'm back here in plenary session, virtual edition. I'm joined by friend of the of the show, Dr. Zeb Yamrojic. Dr. Yamrojic is a practicing physician. He is an infectious disease ethicist. He focuses on the ethics of infectious disease, and I think this is the sixth time he's been on the show in this pandemic. Zeb, it's good to see you. Thanks, Nadia. It's great to be back. We have to keep meeting like this. We have to stop meeting like this. I used to say. I used to say, but here we are, back for more. That's right. I mean, you know, there's that saying, uh, things need to change, so things remain the same. And I think we're seeing a lot of the same mistakes repeating themselves. Uh, I guess one, I guess one difference is, I remember that one of the first times we spoke, you know, you said, gosh, why are we so, why are we so alone on this island? And I think yes. there's more people coming to the, to, back to reality, to the idea that maybe the evidence from what we're doing isn't so great. Maybe there's been a lot of harms and so on, but there's also still a lot of people who I, I think haven't woken up. Yeah, and that's what this conversation hopefully will cover. What people who have woken up, I do think we have more company than we did from the first time, um, but the persistent reservations against common sense and evidence-based medicine. So let me start you off with a topic that um, I wonder how you think about. Uh, the bivalent booster, BA4-5 and Wuhan. 50% Wuhan, 50% BA4-5 came to the market, the US, the U.S. regulatory market, on the basis of uh, eight to 10 mice uh, who have generated robust murine antibodies. You know, the, obviously the gold standard of evidence-based medicine, the murine antibody. Then we have the randomized trial clinical outcomes. That's number two uh, behind that. Um, so, you know, some of my sources tell me that actually the companies were thrown for a loop, that they had been advised by FDA to develop a BA1 Wuhan bivalent vaccine. They were running clinical trials. That's why Moderna has press released and Pfizer has press released. Um, at the last minute, the FDA said, we actually want you to go for BA4-5, that sort of truncal parent stra root, um, and uh, and Wuhan. And... Um, and, and now we have them authorized for, you know, six and up um, in the United States. So I'm wondering if you would talk a little bit about the evidence. What kind of evidence would you want to see for something that's debuted on the broadest population and imaginable? Some European countries are doing the same thing, but they're focusing on 65 and 50, respectively, which I think is also not ideal, but defensible, more defensible than what we're doing. But I wonder how you think about this. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, it, the first thing to say is that every single day that goes by, the benefit of vaccines is going down, right? Because more and more people have been infected. Many people have been infected multiple times, including with Omicron. Uh, this kind of this kind of myth that an Omicron infection wouldn't protect you against a new Omicron infection that's been shown to be false, as you know, as one might predict if you understood basic immunology. Um, and, and so, so the benefits are going down all the time, uh, and. You know, it's a bit different in lots of ways to influenza, where the strains change every year and so on. Um, but so in this situation, you really want to see, especially for young, healthy people, very high quality data, not only of benefit, but ideally that the benefit outweighs the likely risks of these vaccines because they're not risk free, especially kind of in young men. Um, so, yeah, data in eight mice that, that doesn't really replace randomized control trials to, for me. And I tend to I tend to agree with you that um, uh, with respect to people say, oh, this is like the flu vaccine. Well, there's lots of reasons why it is not like the flu vaccine. Mm -hmm. uh, but an important kind of takeaway from that might be that maybe we should demand better evidence the, from influenza vaccines every year yeah. than we demand this. And, and one of the areas, one of the groups in which we should demand 
really good evidence is in young healthy people and say children each year it'd be nice to see some carefully collected randomized control trial data maybe at the start of the flu season maybe in the other hemisphere you know before in the global north you get data in the global south and vice versa you can trade off every year uh get some get some data showing showing decent benefits um before we roll it out before we give the the company that makes it kind of millions or billions of dollars and before we expose people to potential small risks uh, we need to know what the benefits outweigh those risks, and I don't think we can learn that from from eight mice. You know, and I it's really refreshing to hear you say that because uh, it feels like you're alone on an island uh, of an island called sanity in a sea of insanity. Um, I totally agree with that. I guess one question I have is, and I don't fully understand, why do United States experts say with a straight face that a 20 year old man who had Omicron last month will derive additional benefit from being vaccinated against a strain for five that is actually predates the strain that he just had. What, I guess one, you know, it just simply doesn't make immunologic sense. And two, but yet people say it as if the counter view is, is incorrect. Um, what do you, what do you think is going on here? Why, why are they saying this? I don't, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think people, um, people uh, like, stories and then and some people like simple messages they, they would prefer a simple message to the truth mm -hmm. um but uh you know one of the stories is the story is vaccination is one of the greatest um kind of revolutions in public health um so some vaccine must be good more vaccine better right. kind of assumption that the same thing applies to say uh, measles vaccines that applies to COVID vaccines and i think we've seen that story go wrong in multiple ways in the pandemic you know uh, the assumption that these vaccines could block transmission because we have these other vaccines that do block transmission uh the the assumption that um yeah that that if it's good for say older adults or whatever who are at very high risk it would also be good for children um it's this kind of more is better kind of approach or if anyone if anyone expresses the slightest doubt that there might be this group in whom the risks and benefits might be more finely balanced or in whom maybe even the risks might outweigh the benefits if they've got immunity from previous infection that's somehow wrong but but that's odd because you know if you look at all pre or just about all previous um mm -hmm. vaccine requirements you know if you had immunity from measles infection uh, you didn't have to get the measles vaccine. That doesn't make any sense. Now, the immunity from measles is you know, better in lots of ways than, than immunity to coronaviruses. Um, but still, we should take that into account. And it, it's hard to know. You know, there must be some experts who are in the pay of the companies, you know, directly or indirectly um, who make this. But I think it's also people are worried, worried about going off message, right? That if you mm. say something, if you say something, it's even, you know, casts vaccine into into doubt one vaccine in one in one individual you could be labeled an anti-vaxxer and you know that's the kind of worst thing that could happen in our society at the moment um so i think there's a it's a question of stories kind of rather than evidence yeah and that kind of concerns me as uh an evidence-based person but uh to have people rely on stories and i do think you're right that might be what's going on and it's coupled with the fact that they've selected people who are in many cases picked for being good storytellers i mean ashish jaw he's yes the brown dean of public health school but he's not picked because they read his work on medicare uh administrative data sets he's picked because he was on tv and he's on tv because he tweets and he tweets and does on tv because he's a storyteller and that's what are the, those are the skills that that go get you far there you want to say something yeah well just just that public health is kind of um always uh political and the higher the higher up people get in the power structure of public health 
unfortunately, the kind of further away they get from kind of health and the closer they get aligned to the to political power. And it takes a very kind of strong, uh, principled kind of person to stand up to that power and say, you know, actually, no, you know, we, we shouldn't recommend this um, because you might lose your job. They might replace you with someone else um, who's going to on the political message. Um, I think that's one of the reasons people are selected as a selection bias, right? People are selected for people who are going to say what those in power want. Um, and yeah, there's also a lot of money controlling what the message is. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think few people in biomedicine are deeply principled and most people came to do good but stay to do well. And that means that at some point in your career, you realize you're just going to make a lot more money, have a lot more success if you, to some degree, tow some party line, some political consensus, even if that butts up against what you think the best evidence says and then to some degree it's like you know a lot of people just don't know what best evidence is supposed to say because they don't make you know a living thinking about it but i'm wondering what you think about there's a revelation recently pfizer has uh there's some video clip that people are taking to mean a lot where pfizer says our initial vaccine randomized trials they were not designed to prove or even to test whether or not the vaccine halts transmission of course, that's correct. I mean, I wasn't under any illusion that they were testing that. I know they're not testing that. Why? The primary endpoint of the study was symptomatic SARS-CoV-2, which is having a documented SARS-CoV-2 infection and also some symptoms, even if they are mild. I thought at the time it was reasonable as an endpoint for a 40,000-person randomized control trial. I thought it was good that we also saw some signal on severe disease and hospitalization, um, particularly in the Moderna study where it was heavily imbalanced, I think 29-1 in the first 30 cases in the NEJM paper. Um, you know, one could imagine how you, would you have assessed for transmissibility? You would have had people, I think, have lots of blinded swabs uh, of the nose to see what percent had PCR carriage and then maybe even swab people around them in their, in their, in their circles. Um, you could have also done challenge studies, which have been an even cleaner way to do. Um, but I think it was obvious that we didn't make them study that endpoint. So one, maybe to comment on that. But the second part of the question is, you know, I've been thinking about it, and I think maybe we were wrong in a couple ways. The idea that the initial vaccine trial had to be 18 to 98 or whatever it was, 108, maybe that was a mistake. Maybe what we should have said was your initial randomized control trial should be 65 to, you know, 100, and the primary endpoint of the study should be all-cause mortality. Um, and I guess I'm curious to pick your brain because we know that, I mean, this gradient is logarithmic gradient. I think that's what people don't really understand. The nature of the change from 40 to 80 is a huge, it's a, it's a, it's a monumental change. So in retrospect, and to be honest, if I were, you know, in the room, I might've pushed for it harder endpoints, but more focused on the age groups we really want to target. Would you have advised that? And then what are your thoughts on this concern that the trial didn't assess, assess for transmissibility? How might we have designed that? Yeah, Matt, I actually pointed, pointed this out at the time that, gosh, um, one thing we really want in this trial is we want it to, at the very least, to have a look at, maybe as, maybe as a secondary endpoint, asymptomatic infection. Because we want to know, are some people who are vaccinated then exposed to the virus, do they catch the virus and can they, you know, are they infectious to others? Um, because that's a really powerful piece of information. That's the most powerful thing vaccines can do is block transmission. Now, people who actually knew something about coronaviruses, which is a very small 
very small number of people at the time pointed out that maybe it's quite unlikely we're going to find, you know, just based on the, the biology, the, the, the natural patterns of immunology in the community, uh, you know, unlike measles, there's not epidemics that disappear, coronaviruses, people get reinfected every couple of years, it's going to be really hard to get a vaccine uh, that's going to block transmission, but still we should have looked for it, at least by, by looking for asymptomatic infection post-vaccination. And I think the AstraZeneca trial, you know, the one that wasn't, wasn't, designed for profit <laughs> you know that one actually they actually did look at um some asymptomatic infection endpoints uh, but but another issue with that is that uh well not that many people are actually exposed and these trials were, were terminated very quickly though you know the Pfizer trial was terminated after 43 days mm-hmm. and the chance that you can be powered for asymptomatic infection uh in that period to get useful data uh, is maybe not great for, for a range of reasons. And there is a difficult ethical trade-off there, right? Because if you find that the vaccine looks really effective against symptomatic disease or indeed severe disease, there's ethical pressure to end the trial so that the people on the placebo arm can get access to the vaccine and so they get to benefit. It's about protecting the people in the trial, giving them something back for taking a risk for science. Um, uh, but there's another important aspect of vaccine trials, which is we want to get the most scientific information about how these vaccines are going to work in the community. And that can sometimes outweigh our kind of ethical duties to the participants. Um, but on your second point... Uh, Wait, can I pause I, for one second? Uh, sorry, not to break your thought. I guess one uh, one other thought there is we were clearly supply constrained from December until April. We could have randomized the rollout, including to the control arm participants, you know, as a way to balance... Now you're getting 180-day follow-up without unblinding and crossover or 270-day follow-up just because you're resource-constrained anyway. Your thoughts on that from an ethical standpoint? Yeah, so I mean, this this is actually an area of kind of active debate in research ethics about what, what are the conditions under which we could extend a trial when we find that there's divergence between the two arms. Um, and you have to have a good rationale. But when you've got yeah, a public health crisis of this size um, and when, as you say, there's going to be constraint on access, you know, we owe something to the participants, but uh, we don't owe them kind of absolute access if there's more important scientific information we can get. I, I tend to agree with that. And I think that actually links to your second point. Okay. So they, say, we're, say we're running, I agree with you that we really, we should have run these trials in older adults. And just looking back, I think, I think it's clear that one of the foundational lies of this pandemic is that this virus is dangerous to healthy young people. You know, it really, you just take a look at the data pre-vaccine. It's not exposing people to young, healthy people to very large risks. You know, it's it's something in the same order of magnitude as your background risk of being expo- of being killed in an accident. You know, in fact, it's probably it's probably lower. So it's, it's not massively increasing your risk as a young, healthy adult. And mm-hmm. um, but at the start of the pandemic, because it was convenient to force young, healthy people to participate in all these interventions, non-pharmaceutical interventions and so on, there was this foundational lie that, oh, uh, this virus is also a risk to you. Uh, eventually that became kind of well, COVID and so on. Um, but so that was kind of one of the reasons that I think the trials went wrong. But but here's one thing you could do. You could run one trial in older adults that was right. kind of looking for severe endpoints and then you could run another trial in young, healthy adults. And in the young, healthy adult trial, what's the real question? The real question is, can we vaccinate young, healthy people in order to protect others, i.e., does the vaccine block transmission? And so in, and in that trial, because the risks of the disease are so much lower, it would be more ethically acceptable to run the trial with a longer follow-up in the placebo group 
because the placebo group, they're not facing very large risks. And we would have got really key information right there by early 2021 that these vaccines after a month or two are pretty hopeless at, at blocking kind of asymptomatic infection and transmission. Um, and it's a real pity that we missed out on those data and that some people still believe uh, that these vaccines are, are doing a lot of indirect benefit to others, but that's it's just not true. You know, that's so well said. And um, I think uh, when when sanity prevails, people will see that that's, I think that's the right strategy. You run the trial in the elderly group powered for, you know, some hard endpoint, all-cause mortality or severe disease or hospitalization. I mean, I think if you pick the right age, all-cause mortality is really within the ballpark. You can power it easily. Um, and then also have a different set of endpoints, but longer trial in people who have less risk. I think that's the right answer. Let's talk a little bit about long COVID. Um, Ooh, it's a tough issue. Uh, so one narrative is that Western medicine has always discounted people's lived experience and has told many people who are really suffering from disease that what they feel is not real and we, cause, because we don't have a label for it and that it's all in their head and that they're mistaken. And I think there's some truth to that narrative and there are many examples like that. There's another narrative, which is that it became abundantly clear by the fall of 2020 that it is very difficult to litigate the case that a 30-year-old man who's in good health has a lot to worry about with COVID-19 because, in fact, he probably doesn't. So one solution to the claim that it isn't a big deal for a 30-year-old man to get and recover from COVID-19 would be if COVID-19 could have some long-term impact, if it could wreck your nervous system or your brain or your brain fog or these sorts of things. And in fact, I think if one traces the history of long COVID, it didn't originate in the peer review literature. It originated on Facebook, but it really was created, I think, by Ed Yong in The Atlantic. I think he was the one who had the article on long haulers that literally created this article. And he was a, you know, a talented journalist who had a, a story. Again, it's about stories and it was a great story. Um, since then, I have reviewed many, many long COVID papers, and we have some peer review articles under review where we find huge problems in the methodology and the definitions and the target and the endpoints and the assessment. Uh, it is uh, almost a disastrous field. And I think Lars Hemkins and John Unides have published some papers on this long COVID in kids, which is perhaps even more of a disaster than long COVID in adults. Some of the people generating a lot of the long COVID research use administrative data sets where billing codes, yes, you're shaking your head, billing codes are used to create what the sequela of COVID is, but that is so problematic when billing is constantly incentivized. We have reports recently of widespread billing fraud in response to incentives. Three, if somebody has COVID and you keep reading about all the things COVID can do, you were going to look differently than you would in somebody who you didn't read all those things in the past. If somebody's been primed by the media to say they have brain fog or their heart may hurt, you know, they're going to be pursuing these things. And so at the end, you know, so, so I think that's, a, we can talk about that for a minute. The last thing I want to leave you with before I ask, pick your brain on, when the Annals of Internal Medicine did a study, it was done out of the NIH. A very simple study, 189 people, I think 65% endorsed symptoms of long COVID and 100% of those 189 people, they had COVID because they had antibodies to COVID, nucleocapsid antibodies, or they had documented COVID or both. They definitely had COVID. And then the other group definitely didn't have COVID. They don't have anti-nucleocapsid antibodies. They have never had COVID. 
and then they subject them to a battery of blood tests, CBC, CMP, liver function tests, um, uh, 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 T-cell subsets, uh, a whole bunch of immunologic uh, subsets, rheumatologic factors, uh, uh, echocardiogram, uh, you know, CT scans, the works. I mean, you're talking about like the executive physical on steroids, you know, at least 100 blood tests and more. And they found absolutely no differences in any biochemical pathway except for a six-minute walk, which to some degree is volitional, and a bunch of quality of life surveys. And naturally, those favored the group that didn't have COVID. So somebody said to me, well, you know, the human body has 100,000 different pathways. Look at all these things, and you've only tested 200. And they showed a map that shows biochemical pathways are like, you know, intertwined. And that's my point. They're intertwined. So if you sample 200 in, two, in, two, in a, in a 200,000 thing, and there's not a lick of difference from ESR to CRP to CBC to, you know, immunologic subsets, what biochemical pathway is being perturbed that's causing these lasting deficits? Or is it instead, you know, to some degree, a social creation that allows us to justify policies? So what are your thoughts on this long COVID? Well, yeah, there's, I mean, there's so much there's so much to say here. And I mean, as, I've, as I've said previously, when people talk about long COVID, they often run together kind of different groups. There's the kind of brain fog fatigue group. Uh, there's the older adults uh, who, who got sick and then now they have persistent symptoms. There's the people who are unfortunate to go to ICU and now they have symptoms. Those are all different people. But if, but if we just talk and for a moment about the kind of um, the brain fog uh, fatigue patients, uh, yeah, there's this there's this argument uh, that you alluded to from epistemic uh, injustice. So the claim is that um, doctors and other priority figures give credence to certain types of people's kind of um, representations of their symptoms and tend to discount others, people with so-called medically unexplained symptoms, because as you say, we do all these tests, we go looking, we don't find a biological cause. Uh, now, I, I think we just have to differentiate two things here. One is that we should acknowledge that these people are really suffering. You know, they're, they're very they're very disabled uh, often, uh, they're, they're very unwell, um, and we should uh, give justice to their suffering. But it doesn't necessarily follow from that, from our acceptance of, of their suffering, uh, to the idea that uh, there's definitely a physical cause um, or that they might, or that they are kind of have, have special insight into that cause. I mean, even you just think about the term brain fog, you know, you don't actually have access to your brain. You know, people, I, I can't, the brain is not something that you have a, a sense of. You can have mind fog, you know, you're, you're aware of your own mind, but you're not actually aware of the organ that's inside your head, your brain. And so we don't necessarily have to take people's reports of something as face value that there's something going wrong in the organ system. You know, so that's one kind of response to the kind of epistemic injustice argument. Um, but then on, on, on what types of, of data we need for this, um, yeah. So, I mean, my, my favorite my favorite studies on these are controlled studies. Um, and, I, and and the best one I've seen, I don't know, it might have been more recently, is the French one where they had four groups. They had a group, they went, they, first of all, they asked people, do you think you've had COVID? Right? And then they had four groups, the people who had had COVID um, and they thought they'd had COVID, the people who'd had COVID and thought they hadn't had COVID, uh, the people who didn't think they'd had COVID but had had COVID, and the ones who didn't think they had and hadn't had it. And that allowed you to actually differentiate between uh, your perception of having had COVID and your symptoms uh, and actually having had it and having antibodies because they did the blood test after that and having had COVID. And gosh, gosh, what did they find? They found that only one persistent symptom was linked to previous COVID infection, and that was loss of smell and osmia. And there's similarly, 
uh, controlled data in children from the UK that showed exactly the same thing, that the, the only persistent symptom we could find, anosmia. Likewise, in the Human Challenge study, they did it in the UK. They really carefully monitored young, healthy participants. The only persistent symptom they found was loss of smell, you know, loss of taste. Uh, so I think we can be clear that that is something that happens in the long term after coronaviruses. But these these observational observational uh, cohort studies, uh, they are an absolute disaster and don't tell us anything that we need to know uh, about about this disorder. And just you mentioned these kind of administrative data sets. The one that's doing the rounds at the moment is this, is this Veterans Affairs uh, one from the US. I mean, this study uh, should be taught in like first year epidemiology uh, to show people everything that everything that could go wrong. Uh, you know, the, the people who um, get, it's a study of, of multiple reinfections yes, with COVID. Yes, I know the one. Yeah, and anyone anyone who actually looks after patients uh, would know that the patients who get sick over and over again and keep coming into hospital or whatever, those aren't the same people <laughs> yeah. as, the, as the ones who are totally well. Uh, not to mention that in this study, the median age was 60. So it's not telling us about the 25-year-old with brain fog, you know, yeah. it's telling us about a 60-year-old veteran. Um, but yeah, the key thing is, is, is the bias and confounding that happens when you compare a group um, who are constantly representing with symptoms and getting diagnosed with COVID. Often their symptoms will be that their underlying problems, their heart or lung problems have got worse. Then we do a PCR, we find the virus, we yes. say it's just And COVID, often the COVID is, is the same COVID that's been there for three months. It's not gone away. Um, it's not I a mean, reinfection. I it's just persistence. I mean, who knows? And, and and sometimes, yeah, often often that's the case. And sometimes uh, it might it might even be reinfection. But mm. those people are physiologically susceptible to infection, um, and they're also they're also socially susceptible to infection because they keep going to healthcare or whatever. They might get right. re-exposed. Kinds of reasons why why that data set is hopelessly biased and confounded, and we really can't draw any useful conclusions from it. You talk the veterans affair. So there are two authors of that study that are the authors of, by my count, at least 10 or more long COVID studies. I asked someone who works with me to extract the positive and negative controls and the use of flu controls across this cohort. Same authors, same data set, many studies. Would you believe that the controls are constantly changing? That, you know, they're, they're not always, they're not consistent. The positive controls are not consistent. The negative controls are not consistent. The use of influenza as a control is not consistent. That's problematic. I mean, it makes you think that there are, you, I, mean, I don't know, but you wonder about how much analytical flexibility is in this data set. And I suspect there's immense. That, and by that, I mean that if you are well, if you know what the answer is you want and you keep analyzing it different ways, you'll get whatever answer you want. And that is a concern to me. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, to do good science in this kind of area, you have to pre-specify what you're going to do and you have to be consistent. You want to be able to draw conclusions across multiple uh, different ways of studying the question. And yeah, I, I, you, I mean, you're alluding to one thing that I think is, is key here, which is um, one thing we need to know is there's no doubt that after you have a bad viral infection, many of your underlying conditions, heart conditions, lung conditions, brain conditions, whatever, are going to get worse. Um, but what we what we really don't know is is COVID actually any worse than yes, any than other else. Mm -hmm. you know candidate virus like influenza, RSV. You know RSV kills you know tens of thousands of, of older Americans every year and so on. Um, we need a study that that looks carefully, prospectively, not retrospectively, prospectively at people getting infected with different viruses and see what the outcomes are. I don't know what we're going to find because we just haven't studied that enough. 
Um, but we might find that COVID is, is not that much worse, perhaps no worse than some of those other viruses. Um, and we need adequate controls to tell us that. And maybe even some of the other ones are worse than COVID. I think that's well put. Um, I want to pick your brain about a tough subject because the, um, the people online are very passionate about it. I mean, I guess one thing I want to say before I go to this tough subject is just this discrepancy between the virtual world and the real world. In the real world, America, turns out less than 4% of people got the bivalent booster, despite all the, uh, hub, uh, the hoopla around it, less than 4% of people vaccinated their children less than, less than five. Um, the average American is not that worried. They're living normally. I think the average American actually has a profoundly good intuition about risk and benefit. They can think of the risk of going to the mall and the restaurant and weigh it against the risk of dying in a car accident and the risk of not meeting your grandma. I think they have an intuitive sense of that. And that's why I think the average American is making, you know, the right choice. And yet, you know, these are the stats. Nobody wants this bivalent booster. You know, I mean, that's, I, that's not my stat. That's the, that's the CDC stat. And yet if you go on Twitter and you look in the circles that we hang out in, circles that actually discuss medical and public health policy, it feels as if, I haven't quantified it, but it feels as if 50% of people are fervent supporters of hashtag keep boosting, hashtag keep boosting till troponin goes up. No, I mean, you know, there's keep boosting, keep boosting, you know. They're, I mean, they're, and they're proponents of, you know, if a kid under five hasn't been vaccinated, why? Why would a parent, you know, if the four-year-old just had Omicron and recovered, why would the parent not vaccinate? I was like, I'll tell you why, because they have literally just had it and they see how the kid's fine and they think, why take a shot, chance with something else? Okay, uh, it's rational. Um, so I just want to point that out. And if you want to comment about the gap between reality and the virtual world, I think has never been further apart, then I'll ask you what I want to ask you. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I just think um, ordinary people are much smarter than 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 some kind of educated people take them to be. You know, ordinary people are very good in judgments about this kind of thing. Uh, if you give them facts, you know, and and, uh, and I, I really think that's it's obvious in the vaccinating children data that people don't want to vaccinate their child under five because uh, they can see that this virus isn't very dangerous to healthy children under five. Uh, they can see if they bother to spend two minutes that we don't really have great data about, about the risks and benefits of the vaccine in that group, uh, and they're not going for it. And I think that I think that's the right thing to do. You know, And at the very least, they should demand that appropriate studies are done in children before we embark on, on such an approach. Um, you know, why, why, why is the messaging so different among kind of public health uh, folks? Um, you know, I'm not sure, you know, without, without being a, a conspiracy theorist, what we do know is that, is that people who stand to make millions of dollars uh, spend years cultivating so-called key opinion leaders, you know, by flying them out to conferences, giving them, you know, giving them money to give, to give talks about how good the product is and so on. Then I'm sure there's some of that in the ecosystem that, that money is driving the narrative. Uh, and then there's just, there's just some people who, uh, they're kind of, they're frozen in this, in this kind of yeah. 2020 period when, when there was a lot more danger from this thing and where the more people we could get vaccinated at least high-risk people, the better, and that it was high-risk to children, whatever. And they just haven't moved on, and they're still saying the same things. But um, I think there's lots of things going wrong. Yeah, I think that's true. They're still they're stuck in time, frozen in their time capsule with their N95 firmly in place. Um, so what I want to talk to you about is the is the clean air movement. You know, the idea that um, 2020 is the beginning of a new era where we keep our air as clean as we have cleaned our water. You know, once upon a time. I guess once upon a time, there were so few human beings that we didn't routinely defecate in our drinking water. 
Then there were periods of time where there were so many of us, we were all bunched up together in cities where inadvertently we would defecate in our drinking water. Then we would get sick from that. Then someone realized why we were getting sick and we had clean water. And I think I'm on the side of clean water in the clean water story. Sure, I don't want anyone defecating in my water, um, only in my medical journal. No, just not my water. Okay, not my water. Um, now there's the idea that we're going to do the same thing for air in the next 10 years as we did for water. And the comparison strikes me as a little bit challenging in a number of ways. Um, and I'm curious to pick your brain on this. Um, one is, to my knowledge, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but we got to be clear on what are the outcomes we want to work on now. You know, we're past, I think, the emergency phase of the pandemic, and now we're in this sort of returning to life phase where SARS-CoV-2 will be one of the many circulating viruses you can get season to season. And as you say, coronavirus, once you get it, you will get sick, and then you might go several years, but then you'll get reinfected again, just like so many other things in life where it'll, you know, keep getting you every few years. Um, I was recently reading a book. It was written in 2007. And I tweeted this picture, one of the characters came down with the flu and his friend, you know, tucked him in bed, gave him a warm blanket, put a hot water bottle. He says, am I dying? Do I have SARS? Do I have the bird flu? He's like, no, you just have people flu. Drink this orange juice, take some rest. You'll feel better. I got to go to work. I'll check on you later. He didn't go in there with an N95 on. He didn't saran wrap the door. He didn't exile. As some doctors are writing, they exile their four-year-old to upstairs and they sleep in the basement with that purifier on. He didn't set up a Corthy Rosenthal box or duct tape box fans with HEPA filters. He just accepted that I'm going to be exposed to, COVID, uh, to flu. My friend has flu. He needs a little help. And I might get exposed in the bar. I might get exposed here. Okay. So I think one of the challenges that the people who want to purify the air face is that even if you put great investments, financial investments, which of course have trade-offs, that means there's things we're not spending on. And even if you spent that on HEPA filters everywhere or whatever UV light you want, one, I mean, you just simply don't have randomized data that you're going to be averting infections. I would love to see that. And that randomized data will balance the places you can control and the places you can't control because no one's going to retrofit every single corner of a building, every single church, every single mosque, every single um, you know restaurant, every single bar, every single shed, every single treehouse, every single fort, every single dumpster, every, you know, all the places people go. You're not going to be able to retrofit every single one. And so you're telling me that by sometimes doing this, but not doing it in other places, you're going to bring down the cumulative burden and that's going to be sustained over life. It's not going to have just a bounce back the moment, you know, you go for summer break or whatever. That to me strikes me as deeply biologically implausible that you are going to be able to control the air around us and also ignores that in contrast with defecating in the water, this is something that spreads so, so easily and it, it spreads because we have to be close to each other, you know? And so I think like even with all the box fans in the world duct taped together, you know, over the course of a year or two years, you're going to get the same cumulative number of exposures. Um, but if not, you know, you feel free to run a randomized trial and show me some reduction in, in meaningful outcomes. And meaningful outcomes mean, you know, something beyond um, PCR positivity. But anyway, how do you think about this clean air movement? Yeah, I mean, there's so many, there's so many things to say here, right? I mean... One thing, again, is as people are in stories, right? And the, the public health people, one of the stories they're addicted to is the Jon Snow story, right? So there's a cholera, there's a, there's a cholera outbreak in London. Uh, you know, they, they carefully go around Jon Snow and the priest and they find where the cases are. Then they realize that the well is poison and then they turn off the well. Uh, you know, they turn off the tap, um, the Broad Street pump. Uh, 
and people love that story. Um, but uh, this, this story, <laughs> respiratory viruses, is not the same as that story for lots of reasons. And, you know, when I first saw people bringing up Jon Snow and the Jon Snow memo or whatever, you know, I was like, I was like, you know, there's a difference here, which is that we can't turn off the tap. You know, you can't, you can't just make this go away like you could make um, one well poison with cholera go away. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's lots of things to say here. And when often when well, I find that when I say the things along the lines of what you've said, people say, well, you wouldn't be against clean water, would you? You know, being against clean air is like being against clean water. It's like, no, uh, these are not analogous situations. I mean, and l- let's talk about the ways yeah. that they're analogous, right? So uh, one, of the, one of the ways is that, you know, as you say, well, here's, here's some facts. Uh, each human being breathes in about 100 million viruses every single day. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. You're not going to be out. A lot of those are harmless viruses, the so-called phage viruses and so on. Um, we're not going to be able to get rid of all those viruses. Um, yeah. Then uh, in your body, there's about 300 trillion from memory uh, viruses in your body. Um, and we've only just started to learn about uh, that ecology, the so-called human virome. You know, we barely know anything about the human microbiome in terms of bacteria. We just don't know, for example, how people's bacterial microbiome gets formed in early life. These are really important scientific questions. We don't know the answer. The virome, we have even less idea. And you know, one worry I have just to start with about this is that um, if you're confident that you can intervene in this complex ecology between humans and viruses, and, and that you're going to get you know, definite benefit, I, I think you need to think again um, for two reasons. One, uh, we, we just don't understand it and we might get no benefit. And two, people might actually be made worse off. You know, I don't know. <laughs> but, 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 you know, some of these viruses are good. We might not want to get rid of all of them. And so we just need to be careful here. And by the way, this is the situation that the precautionary principle was designed for, right? <laughs> yeah. Where you don't know what we don't know what the hell you're doing, uh, maybe you shouldn't intervene without really good data to start with. So that, that's a kind of background thing. Um, yeah. Then, then I think there's uh, you just as a kind of an ethicist who's written about recently about moralization in public health. You know what I find amazing here is that um, you you even use the word purify. <laughs> you know, we're going to purify the air, and and that kind of that that kind of thinking and language provides a clear link between kind of moral thinking and scientific thinking, right? Um, yeah, purify can mean take viruses out, but it can also mean make yourself kind of morally pure. And I think it, for me, it was it was predictable that people were going to moralize uh, infection, infected individuals. They were going to they were maybe going to moralize kind of vaccination status. But what I didn't predict is that people were going to moralize the air. <laughs> They're going to say it's the air that, that's kind of that's kind of dangerous. Um, but anyway. To, to get to kind of should we intervene or not, um, yeah, I'm concerned too that, you know, I, I wish I owned shares in the companies that are making these little ventilator machines because they're, going, they're getting everywhere now. And whenever I say, I say to people, this will be the easiest randomized control trial right. in the world, right? Because you want a control arm, you just switch the machine to the to a setting where it has the light on and it makes the buzzing sound. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's not actually filtering the air. Sham controlled, you, yeah. That's right. And then you have the ones that are filtering the air, yeah. and you don't tell the people in the building or whatever which ones are on and which ones are off. You could do a double-blind crossover study over over many weeks and so on and have a look. Um, and look, it's possible that by doing this, uh, we might decrease um, uh, exposure to pathogenic viruses. We might uh, at least temporarily decrease um, symptomatic uh, respiratory viral infections. Uh but I think we need to be super careful there because decreasing them temporarily is not the same as a long-term public health benefit. You know, a couple of things could happen. 
One is that people could get infected less frequently, but each infection might be on average more severe right. because right. less immunity, longer distance between between exposures and so on. Um, alternatively, it might make no difference. You know, I just don't know. And the only way to know um, properly is going to be to do a randomized control trial. Um, you know, some people say we should just abandon randomized control trials. I think this is a perfect case where we want to use one. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the other thing, as you say, is why are we why are we so unsatisfied with the with the um, the version uh, of kind of infection control that you that you talk about from that book, which is again, people aren't stupid. When you're really symptomatic and you're coughing and you're unwell, um, well, maybe you should rest, and ideally, you should be kept away from other people, especially other people who are like vulnerable to severe disease and so on. And maybe you know, that's the kind of thing where we could get a lot of benefit in society, making sure people have access to sick leave, uh, that that doctors stop coming to work when they're sick, you know, get rid of the culture of presenteeism in medicine and so on. And we could make a big difference there. And um, to believe to believe that the answer is going to be to, to turn on these machines, I don't even know if they work, and purify the air, I, I think that's a mistake. And some people say, uh, oh, it's even better. Not only will we get rid of the viruses, we're going to get rid of the allergens out of the air and yeah, so on. That's again, a big mistake. Yeah. Again, I don't know if that's yeah, I don't know if it's going to be a benefit. It might be worse um, because a lot of what we're learning about allergic disease is that the less you're exposed to an allergen, sometimes the worse your allergy gets. And again, we, we need to collect data to work out whether there's whether the benefits outweigh the risks. Yeah, it's very well said. You know, like these peanut allergy people, look at all the good they did by depriving us of peanuts. Um, you don't know what you're playing with. I mean, one of the points I made that got me in a heap of trouble, uh, well, not a heap of trouble. I mean, realistically, just got some, a few people, the same people, the usual suspects were unhappy with my comments. One is that there's no evidence that these boxes, for all the electricity they're burning and all the fossil fuels they're polluting and all this stuff, that they actually make us better off in the long term. Um, and then the second thing was to the point that you're making, which is that let's say you actually do randomized control trial of whatever box you want uh, versus sham box, and you show over 10 years, people who work in one building versus the other building, um, you could show some more interesting things like productivity and stuff. And maybe that goes up if you get a little a burst of fresh air. That's why I actually like to open my window when I'm working. You know, who knows? Maybe those endpoints will be met. I'm actually more optimistic about that endpoint than I am about some of these disease endpoints. But let's say you show that over the course of a decade, they get four severe URIs, four milder URIs, and maybe seven URIs that you know you barely notice. And then the control group gets in the sham control group, so it's you know double blind. And then they get like I don't know, five bad URIs, three mild URIs. Let's say it even works, you know, or whatever. It even works. I guess the question I have is, I'm still not persuaded that I'm better off. And one of the points I made is. Do, do you think you know everything about immunity and autoimmunity and cancer and all the long-term things that you would be so confident that this snapshot of life that you've captured by URI is the full story of life? And by that, I mean, I'm not claiming that there is a link. I'm just saying that you have to be honest. So we don't know. We The immune system, we know so little. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't be persuaded that that necessarily is better. And then I saw somebody had a long thread where they're like, oh, you know, what, what Prasad doesn't understand is the difference between commensal bacteria and pathogenic bacteria. And I was like, yeah, that, that's called begging the question because you don't know it's commensal or pathogenic unless you know the full effects of it. You've just begged the question. You don't even know what begging the question is. Like, you're, you're literally just substituting words for the fundamental issue, which is that, you know, there've always been back, to, you know, we could sterilize our whole bodies. And not that long ago, people actually thought that would be better. They didn't acknowledge that there may be some downsides. And now we know the microbiome is important, etc. You know, we didn't understand that, I think, even when I started in 20, 2005 in medicine. Um, 
anyway, I mean, this is, we, it's, we're past the point. I mean, I guess the point we're making here is twofold. One, it's unclear with robust evidence if this actually does anything on these softer endpoints of how many URIs you get. And two, it's unclear the link between how many URIs you get in some finite period of time and really what we care about, which is optimizing long-term health and well-being. And that's very murky. And you're making a lot of assumptions along the way and you're running a machine. Oh, and then the last thing I'll say before I get your thoughts is that some of these machines may actually worsen outcomes because they are have some UV, radi UV light that's creating free radicals or ozone or some bullshit in the air. I don't want to be breathing that. I mean, if they, if they told me that their plan was just to open the window a little bit more, okay, I'm happy to do that. But if you're going to tell me you're going to pay for some $15,000 light stick that's going to be shining shit in my air, uh, no, thank you. I I'd rather take the old-fashioned air, the tried-and-true air, than whatever magic air you're trying to sell me because I don't know if your air is actually going to... Maybe I'll have a, one less cold, but then, you know, something else down the road that I didn't want to have, and I won't even dare speculate. Okay, last thoughts on these air police? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, yeah. I guess I, I'm with you on the just open the window thing, and you know, on the one hand, it's kind of it's kind of a, it's kind of a throwback to a good period of public health, which is during the tuberculosis yes. uh, pandemic in the late 19th century. People realized that if we built built better houses, people weren't housed in such terrible conditions. That you know, people could open the windows and so on. They seemed to get less TB. But I mean, there's a complex kind of causal story there that we don't maybe don't need to go into. But but yeah, it's more complicated than than people think. Um, uh, and I, I, agree, I agree with you. I'm, the right answer is we just don't know. <laughs> I don't know whether it's going to be a, a long-term benefit or a long-term harm. Um, it might be a long-term benefit to get less symptomatic respiratory virus infections. Uh, then that It might be the case that flu and RSV and paraflu and all this stuff triggers something in your body that leads to inflammation and other kind of, other, other kind of diseases. I don't know if it's possible. Um, but it's also possible that this intervention is going to do us harm uh, because, as I mentioned, there's this complex ecology in the human in the human virome. Um, and yeah, we have this thing called the hygiene hypothesis, which is that too much hygiene might actually be bad for you. Um, and this might be one of those situations. And until we like carefully collect data on this, we, we just we just have no idea. Um, and we, we need to be looking uh, not only at these kind of short term kind of uh, meaningless endpoints and looking at long term outcomes to see to see if it makes a difference. Yeah, that's super well said. Um... I want to talk to you a little bit about Paxlovid. Paxlovid. Uh, in America, we just put that in the tap water just so you're safe. No, just, but it feels that way. Um, now, what's the debate with Paxlovid? I think we have a randomized control trial, EPIC-HR, that clearly shows benefit in people who are both at high risk of severe disease and also didn't have COVID at baseline and also uh, are unvaccinated. And if you're in that group, old, high risk, uh, unvaccinated, and didn't have COVID and you get COVID, I have some confidence that Paxlovid lowers your risk of severe disease and hospitalization. Um, now, what if you're in the group that's been vaccinated or vaccinated and boosted or double boosted or triple boosted, or you're not as high risk, you're lower risk, uh, or you've had COVID and recovered from COVID or all of that stuff put together, then I have zero confidence that it does anything for me. And Ashish Jha and the White House here have purchased $10 billion worth of this product, and they are so aggressively passing it out um, because it is also sort of a panacea, it's thought to be the sort of field, it's like a panacea. They've changed the rules around prescribing that a pharmacist can give it out, not just an, a doctor. You can just get it from a pharmacist. And I hear in the UK, you can get antibiotics like just by on demand. It's like, you know, if you want antibiotic, you know, because they have some doctor shortage anyway, that's a separate issue. Okay, they're giving it out recklessly. Um, and we just had panoramic from Molnupiravir. Panoramic is going to weigh in on Paxlovid. 
And I just don't think people really appreciate where, how precarious this is. We saw with Tamiflu, which I think is glorified Tylenol. It shortens your symptoms by one day, but the first day you have more nausea, so it's a total wash. And we stockpiled it for what, 20 billion, you know, billions of dollars. Um, we are spending billions of this as the Pfizer product. We are outsourcing our pandemic response to Pfizer. They're making a ton of money. And you know, I have no idea what we're doing. And even the people who are skeptical of the approach, they say the worst thing possible is a 20 year old doesn't derive much benefit. And I wanna say that's not the worst thing possible. The worst thing possible is it's actually harming them because all drugs harm. Only some drugs have benefit and only some drugs have benefit that exceed harm. That's the way it works. And so I don't know why they're making this regulatory gamble. We can speculate the usual things, but I'm curious your thoughts on Paxlovid. Well, yeah, I mean, just just not even just only Paxlovid, but all these antivirals. Yeah. Um, what are the chances that they provide a significant net benefit in people who've previously been infected with COVID or who've, who or who've recently been vaccinated? Uh, the chance is very, 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 very small. Um, and yeah, throughout this pandemic, I've been looking for kind of Tammy flu too, because mm -hmm. you know many people think that the most important uh, lesson from the 2009 influenza pandemic, as you and I have spoken about before, uh, is that we shouldn't have thrown so much money at Tammy flu, this kind of hopeless antiviral for influenza, and stockpiled it or whatever, because it turned out to be not very good. Why did it turn out to not very not be very good? Because the company that made Tammy flu was actively hiding data that showed that it wasn't good, and it's just it's no coincidence that when we run a trial that's funded by the company versus we run Panoramic, which is funded by the UK government, right, right. We, get, we get very different answers, right? Um, in the in the uh, um, drug company funded trial, uh, we, we, we select the patients, we run the trial in a certain way, we massage the data to try and show any kind of benefit, whatever you can get. In the, in the government funded trial, uh, we're much less biased and we find something that's probably gonna be closer to the truth. And I think we, we just found that with molnupiravir, as you say, uh, that in the, the company, the company's trial, it was good in panoramic it kind of got some secondary endpoints and that's all it really didn't get a lot of benefit. I think we're going to find that with a lot of these antivirals, especially in people with previous infection. Um, and yeah, people are still like, kind of crazy. We need to, they think we need to develop more antivirals. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not so sure about that unless, unless the antivirals we develop in the future are much better than the ones we have now. Yeah, and I think uh, I think that's unlikely because there's a reason why we don't have more antivirals because it's not so easy. Um, okay, let me read you something. This is a physician who's played an instrumental role in guiding American health policy. Quote, when my kid got COVID this summer, and by this summer we mean 2022, not 2020, 2022. When my kid got COVID this summer, and I believe the ages of the kid are, must be like four or five, you know, young. When my kid got COVID this summer, we opened all the windows in the house and we all wore masks, basically lived outdoors. We kept the kids apart and she and I slept in the basement in adjacent rooms and portable air purifier. Nobody else got it. Air is the major variable. To which someone, I think, sarcastically replied, I suspect this person is sarcastic. When my kids got COVID, I set up a shanty town for them in the backyard and exiled them out of love. He writes, most important, do not hug your kids if sick. They will ask. And then he says, this is best to own anti-vaxxers by showing them your multiple boosters work. And another parent replied, when my kids got COVID, I was out of town. I could have delayed my trip home to avoid catching it from them. But A, I'm a good parent. And B, I'm not a, I can't even say the word. It's a derogatory term. Um, okay, so <laughs> um, I, the reason I read those to you is I do think it illustrates the gap between person A who is frequently in the news and is quoted and is like the person that we're looking to for like public health guidance, their five-year-old gets COVID. They've had at least three shots. 
um, you know, by the summertime, this person works at a place where it's mandated. So I'm 100% sure that, you know, they've gotten the shots. And I think they've also tweeted pictures of every shot they've gotten. So, uh, you know, you don't have to have so much doubt. Um, and they're saying they're sleeping in the basement, you know, um, purifiers going. Uh, and then the two people who are critical of this person in to different degrees of sarcasm, they're just regular Joes. Um, but they're hitting on something, which is that part of being a parent means that, you know, you're going to take a little bit of risk if your kid gets you sick. That's, you know, part of the trade-off. And if your kid wants, you know, so don't hug them. Even, they'll want to be hugged and you won't hug. You know, it's, a, it's a joking, I hope. And then, you know, and so how do we, how do we get over this part, which is um, every psychiatric illness I ever read about was when the problem affects your life. That's the def that's the thing that makes an you know something neurotic actually meet DSM five or your obsessive compulsive disorder. It me it becomes pathologic when it keeps you from doing what you want to do, spend time with your grandkids and get out of your house and those kinds of things. And to, and I think we've reached it. And 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 again, I'm not taking a quote from random person. I'm taking a person who is frequently quoted in the news. What does it say that they are making these recommendations? What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I think the first, yeah, the first thing is that um, you want to we crossed that threshold a long time ago that people's anxiety became pathological. I mean, we crossed that, we crossed that in early 2020. Uh, and, and now that the kind of the waters have come down, the waters of anxiety and virus sort of have come down, the pandemic's fading away. We're left with these people who are kind of left above the tide line, who are still mm -hmm. living these incredibly anxious lives, still wearing their mask outdoors and so on. Um, and yeah, we need to accept that, that health and that life are about more than just avoiding one particular virus. And, you know, one of the things that life might be about is is spending time with people, you know, loving people, caring about people, especially people in your family. And I think if, you're, if your fear of a virus is leading you to all these bizarre behaviours, that's a problem for you. But, but worse, I mean, children have just been harmed in so many ways uh, during this pandemic. We, you know, we can list all those ways. But the idea that their own their own parents would give them such a strange, distorted childhood, like modeling for the children that this is the normal way you respond when people around you get sick. Mm. Um, I think that that's kind of going to be hugely problematic in the very, very long term. Uh, and just on the point of, well, the person who's had all the boosters, why are they afraid of getting infected? I, I think that's that's a that's that's a real difficult area uh, in public health messaging where you know my own view is that you're going to get infected um, eventually uh, the best time to get infected is when your immunity is quite high after being vaccinated say you're an adult and so on um ultimately we maybe should have said to people <laughs> infection at that time might be a good thing um but that's a very hard message to take when you've been like banging on about how dangerous this virus is and so on um we should talk about how there's better and worse times to get your first exposure but but that's something that's that, that's been very taboo yeah, no, I think that's absolutely the right way to think about it. And I was always, uh, you know, early in January 2021, I said, after you get vaccinated, throw away the mask and get back to life for many reasons. One, because we have it was a sustained trade off. And that trade off was it was fundamentally different uh, and it was not going to get any better. And, you know, you just got to get back to life. Um, and as each month went by and each year has gone on, I have just felt more similarly. Um, you don't want to go ahead. Just one more thing on that. Yeah, I, I was reading. I was reading this story by Anton Chekhov the other day, who is not only a doctor but one of the greatest writers who ever lived. And it's a story called "The Man in a Case," and it's about this man who's who's constantly covering up his face, wearing a hat, wearing gum boots, having an umbrella. He, he doesn't want to interact with the world. It's a beautiful description, 
And that character becomes a tyrant for others. Uh, he's obsessed with rules. He wants all these other people to follow the rules and so on. Uh, it's, it's just an amazing story. And when I read that, I thought about these people who are not only kind of terrified to engage with the world and with others, but want other people to kind of follow all these kind of rigid rules. And I think it's a sad way to live. Um, yeah, and it's a sad story. That's really that's really interesting. I'm going to read this Chekhov story. The story that a lot of this reminds me of is, a, is an also a Russian story, the Tolstoy story, How Much Land Does a Man Need? Where there's some opening premises, there's some bet or some bet or some promise that says um, you're going to get as much land as you can walk around from sun up to sundown. But the only rule is by sundown you have to complete the circle. And a man starts walking, and as he goes along, he sees, oh, if I just go a little further, I'll get that pond. If I just go a little further, I'll get that grove of trees. If I just go a little bit further, and then as he gets to the end, obviously, you know, he doesn't make it, and he ends up with nothing. And uh, and that, to me, is also this idea that you can chase, you can be greedy, and chase this this platonic ideal of perfection to the point where uh, you're left with nothing. You're left in ruins. And... You know, that to me is, you know, not hugging your kids if your kids are sick. Uh, you may not get sick with COVID, but you're left in ruins because the literal idea of what it means to be a parent has been shattered. That the parent is the person that hugs you even when you're even when they can get sick. You know, they hug you. That's part of the bond of being a parent, you know, and, and, and that to me is, you know, a great loss. Um, OK, I wanted to ask you about this situation. Holden, Holden Thorpe. I almost said Holden Cowfield, but that's Catherine the Right. Holden Thorpe, um, the editor-in-chief of Science Magazine and a distinguished academic of the United States. Uh, you know where I'm going with this? You followed a little bit. Um, he has a blistering editorial by Joseph Ladapo. So as way his background for the listeners, Joe Ladapo. Joe Ladapo is, um, uh, he's, uh, I think he's an immigrant. Uh, he's a black man. He has an MD, PhD from Harvard Medical School. He's a general internist. A few years ago, he was hired by UCLA. I think he came from NYU became an associate professor in residence at UCLA, tenured professor, saw patients. Um, uh, I think he, I, 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 he saw patients. Uh, he did health policy research. Um, he, early in the pandemic, he took some points of view that you know I don't agree with, like he thought hydroxychloroquine was very promising. I've always said, same thing you say, most drugs don't work, repurposed drugs don't work. And I say that because, you know, I've just looked at every single repurposed drug, they just generally don't work. I've, you know, low pretest probability, we need randomized studies. But then he had a number of things that I think it's gonna be hard to argue with him historically. Masks have limited evidence, masking children has even weaker evidence, school closure has weaker evidence, and lockdown has serious side effects. Those were Ladapo's positions in 2020. And I think if anything, they're quite prescient and accurate. Um, Ron DeSantis, uh, known conservative governor, not just any conservative governor, but somebody who's felt to be very promising. And if you listen to DeSantis talk, I think he has, you know, he is a smart politician, Harvard-educated lawyer, governor of a major state. He is definitely a player to be president of the United States in my lifetime. Um, he needed a surgeon general. He asked Joe Ladapo to do it. Joe Ladapo moves over to Florida. University of Florida makes Joe Ladapo a full professor, um, and uh, he starts doing surgeon general work. Recently, he has published a, um, uh, 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 it, it, what is it, a self-case control series, um, an SCCS type study design, where he argues that in the immediate aftermath of a 16 to 39-year-old getting mRNA vaccine dose two, there's an elevated risk of, cardi of death, particularly cardiac death, and that's not there days 30 to 60 as it was from days zero to 30, okay. Um, the problem with the study is that the data is thin. There's just few events, it's a small data set. But Ladapo, one of Ladapo's points is that it would be intuitive and logical that a product that had myocarditis would 
statistically, on average, have some death signal, even if that's very, very small, it's intuitive that it would be there. But the study's not perfect, and the study's not a peer-reviewed study. It's not in you know New England Journal. It's just a study that they have performed at the Florida Public Health, um, the Florida Surgeon General Office. They, they, pro- they, they publicize their study. Holden Thorpe has a blistering essay in Science Magazine, critical of Joe Ladapo, where he calls him uh, anti-science. He calls uh, Ron DeSantis anti-vax. Uh, he says that this is the problem. And he actually takes it even further than I thought. He says, University of Florida has an obligation to control your faculty member. What are you going to do, stand silently by, when he promotes you know, misinformation that leads to death? And then he had a few things in there, Zeb, that just really struck me. One, he said, many people are saying that Joe Ladapo wouldn't have been professor at Florida had it not been for DeSantis' favoritism. And I was like, mm, he's a black man, MD, PhD, associate professor at UCLA. If anything... He's going down to go to Florida. No offense, Florida, but I mean, he could definitely be full professor in Florida. No offense, University of Florida. But a lot of people would view that as a career step down. I'm just saying, but I, he's definitely qualified. And then the other thing he says is Joe Ladapo says, quote, I'm just trying to start a discussion and a debate. And then Holden Thorpe says, that's page one of the anti-science playbook. To which I say, but it's also page one of the I'm trying to start a debate playbook. So, you know, it could, it's not necessarily saying I'm trying to have a discussion. It's not just anti-science. Scientists do that, too. We have discussions. Um, but more than anything, what struck me is that science has got to be science. They publish Big Bang and the mTOR pathway and all this. They've got to be politically neutral. And this article reads to me like Science Magazine. If you like Ron DeSantis or anyone who works for Ron DeSantis, don't read Science Magazine. Send your article to Nature where they like your conservative Republican Big Bang Theory. And if you want the Democratic progressive Big Bang Theory, you send it to Science Magazine. And, and that to me, that's what it feels like to me. And I'm a progressive, but I'm like, this is crazy. Okay. I tip my hand too much. But what do you think about this where... where journals are taking stances on these issues and they have the political valence how how are they supposed to navigate these waters right i mean i mean there's so many things to say here but yeah so i mean i agree with you it's page one of the science playbook that we should welcome (laughs) we should should welcome different ideas um and we should test them rigorously and if they turn out to be wrong we should discard them but if they turn out to be right we should investigate them further uh that i i think and and that's democracy in science i think we want science to be as democratic as possible now, science often tends to be maybe not as totalitarian as it has become in the last two years, but people do tend to be blinded by their own biases. Like within their field, they believe certain things um, based on the scientific data. But I think on top of that, we've got some, we've clearly got some political influence and, and, and that's clearly a bad thing. Um, you know, one of the earlier articles in Science Magazine that really struck me was the one, it was it, 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 late, late 2020. Um, and it was, the title of the study was coronavirus immunity is short lasting. And it was a really excellent study where they had gone back, they had longitudinal data and they looked at antibodies that go up and down when you get reinfected with endemic coronaviruses. And it was a a study from the Netherlands and they showed that you get infected with endemic coronaviruses about every uh, one and a half to two and a half years. Um, Good study. Why was the title immunity is short lasting when it showed that actually immunity pr- protects you against symptomatic infection or even even asymptomatic actually for about two years mm-hmm. and that actually each reinfection is quite mild there's a different way of framing that study by saying <laughs> coronavirus immunity is really good for at least two years and if people had right. have said that in, tw- in 2020 that would have been a very different message but most people don't read the study they just read the title and that told me that already the editorial team that was kind of looking after that was choosing to frame 
the studies they were publishing in a certain kind of way. And that tells me that there's there's some politics because there was a political uh, imperative um, to present those data in that kind of way. And on this on this on this Florida thing, uh, yeah, look, I think uh, once you know that that some young people, especially young men, are getting large, uh, sometimes large degrees of heart damage. I mean, you know, there are cases out there of of, of boys or eighteen year olds with a troponin high sensitivity troponin of a hundred thousand. And for your listeners who, who don't know what that means, you know, we would think a, a big heart attack would be something over ten thousand, over fifty thousand would be huge. This is over a hundred thousand. Uh, we're doing that to healthy young young boys. Gosh, we really want to look in carefully uh, about what the possible outcomes of that are going to be. And we do know that one of the outcomes of having large amounts of heart damage is that you do get arrhythmia, you know, heart rhythm disturbance, which can lead to sudden cardiac death. So at the very least, we should look into that question carefully. Many people should be interested in looking into that question, publishing data on that question, even if the data show that there's no effect on sudden cardiac death, which would be a good outcome. Uh, there's no doubt that that's an important question. But there's also no doubt that... Um, that those kinds of uh, investigations are being censored and sometimes self-censored. You know, scientists, yeah. even if they, yeah. I'm, I'm aware of some scientists that have a case series of young men with myocarditis, but they've, they've tried to get it published, they can't, and they're kind of terrified of publishing it because they might uh, be attacked for doing that. And I think um, I, I personally don't want to give up on democracy in science. I think science works best when there's a lot of different voices, some diversity, um, and if we say that there's certain types of things you can't say within science, I think science itself is going to be diminished. Yeah, that's so well said. And I think um, I've seen press releases from or at least a news story from New, New Zealand that, that said that they thought at least one death was attributable to mRNA vaccination in the young man cohort. And we have a paper from The Lancet that shows at least one kid is on ECMO. And so where ECMO goes, uh, you know, somebody having sudden cardiac death is not is not going to be far thereafter. Um, and you also have studies that show uh, long, late gadolinium enhancement, uh, persistent on MR, cardiac MR, months and months later, and that is universally accepted as a poor prognostic sign. And then I think people forget that one in 10,000 myocarditis in young men sounds very rare. It is. It's numerically rare. But when you get to the third dose, the fourth dose, and the fifth dose, and you see there's no floor, and it's looking like 1 in 10K is going to be the floor, um, that's the Katie Scharf paper, the benefits and harms become in really, really close to each other um, and certainly warrants a discussion. And your last point is really true, the climate of fear. But, you know, Zeb, I'm sometimes struck by simultaneously in a week, somebody sends me a protester in Iran is shot with rubber bullets and gets killed, young person. And so you think about the courage it takes to stand up in that world and speak out. And then I read Ukrainian soldier is killed on the battlefield fighting for their country. Um, and you think about the courage that it goes into that. And then I look to some of my colleagues, tenured full professors at universities, and they tell me, you know, I have this case series and I'm a little nervous to publish it. And I'm like, and they're like, because you know, they're all the repercussions. I'm like, well, you're not gonna be killed. You're not gonna lose your job. You're not gonna go hungry. You're probably not going to feel anything. At worst, you might have a uncomfortable conversation with someone and you're not, but you're not willing, but that's, too much. And so I was like, how do we live in a world where an Iranian protester is going to get killed by rubber bullets and we're going to at least acknowledge that that's part of the bravery of the human spirit that's gone back, you know, 100,000 years, you know, that's always been a part of human experience um, and the bravery of the soldier. And then what do we call this for the for the professor? I mean, uh, cowardice? What is it? No, I don't know. Maybe I'm too harsh. 
yeah, I mean, the, the, the situations aren't totally analogous, but yeah, I, I think a broader point is that is that yeah, if you look at history, people have been willing to to fight and to die for freedom, uh, and it's it's so important uh, and it's so fragile, you know, our, our democracy and our, and our free societies. And the last two years have shown how easily they can be taken away, uh, and how few people are willing to stand up to it once it becomes the dominant narrative. You know, and it, there's there's kind of, and I, I basically agree with you that we need more bravery in science. That's a courage, is kind of a virtue that we don't maybe, maybe cultivate enough. Um, and yeah, you know, as you've pointed out previously, uh, it, if you're not getting kind of some blowback, some heat uh, for for what you publish, you're probably publishing pretty boring stuff. I mean, you need to publish stuff. That, <laughs> You need to publish stuff that's pushing the envelope because that's probably where we're actually going to get progress. Um, but yeah, it, you know, I, I worry about the, the bigger issue about yeah, when you see the when you see people in other contexts who are willing to kind of um, put themselves in danger for freedom and how little of that we saw here. You know, it started to look very Orwellian. The, the once once the government is telling you we're doing you for this own good, we're keeping an eye on you with our surveillance and so on. Um, and people became convinced by this narrative, uh, and very few people stood up to it. You know, I think I think that's a problem, and I hope that in a few years' time there'll be more more discussion of where that went wrong. Yeah, that's well put. Now we talk a lot about biases that others may have, including the financial bias, including the bias of actually being in fear. And you and I, I think, uh, more than almost anyone I've talked to, you know, my thinking is like the same as yours on all these issues. Um, even though we, you know, because we're different people, we'll express it differently, but I really feel like agree with you. I've never, I don't think I've ever, I've never heard you say something that I like, I disagree with that. I mean, we generally agree. And the one thing that I initially disagreed with you about, the more I read about it, I realized I was wrong, uh, the challenge trial. And I see your point. Um, but I didn't know enough, uh, but I changed my mind on challenge trials. Now I'm, now I'm where you are, but let me ask you, what is, what is, I'm, you can even make it ours. What is, what is our bias? What is our bias? I mean, we surely have some bias. What is our bias? What is our blind spot to our worldview? Our worldview, I think, is an evidence-based medicine, truly precautionary worldview, which is like, you know, that if you're going to muck with things, you have to have some evidence, time-limited stuff. But what is, I don't know, and, and evidence to us means certain thing that may not mean to other people who believe in other types of evidence, like that are not reliable. We like the reliable type. No, I mean, whatever, you know, tradition, non-traditional. But, but then we must have some bias. And so that's my question to you. What is our bias? Yeah, I, mean, I think, um, yeah, definitely. So within within the kind of scientific and public health policy kind of world and, the, and medical policy world, yeah, I have a couple of biases. And one of my biases is I, I prefer large, well-conducted, well-controlled studies uh, to kind of small, poorly conducted studies. And one reason I care about that is because, uh, you know, I'm, I believe, and I think there's good reason to believe, that they get us closer to the truth of the matter. That's one reason. The second reason is that um, when we are instituting something as a policy, it's going to affect very large numbers of people. And so that's why we need very you know, large, high quality data sets to inform our decision making about that. Um, and that's one of my biases. You know, some of my colleagues in medicine, uh, they prefer to think about the individual and so on. They think they can make little tweaks in, in individuals. Um, but, but I think we really need kind of lots of high quality data before we make a decision. Uh, you know, that's kind of one of my biases. Um, uh, you know, another one of my biases is, is is a bias towards the null, you know, so I just think it's more likely when we go in to answer a scientific question uh, that there's not going to be 
uh, a relationship between these two variables you know um so you know just 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 to just to think of a, a few things like you know say we do some non-pharmaceutical intervention whatever that is to try and prevent the spread of this respiratory virus uh the most likely thing is that there's not going to be a very large benefit right. you know and I, and I think many people's intuition is that if we have uh, a good story if we have a good mechanism about why this must make a difference well then there must be a big difference but yeah, I've got a bias. I've got a bias towards the null. I, I tend to think that uh, we need a lot of a lot of evidence to convince us that there really is something going on. Um, and then when it comes to kind of outside of science, just broader broader social questions, uh, you know, I, I I think I have I have a bias towards towards fairness. So I'm I'm worried if if something we do in in uh, society is going to make poor people marginalized people worse off you know like a lot of our lockdown type interventions did uh i've got an i've got an intuitive bias against that i i want to try i want to try and help those who are worse off uh and i've got a bias i've got a bias for freedom that you know freedom matters uh there are just simple freedoms the freedom to meet your friends in a park uh the the freedom to um speak and speak freely with others uh the freedom to move about in society i think once we're once we're sacrificing those freedoms for something we need to have a really good reason uh and to overcome my bias you need to show me that that that, that we've got good reason to do that so i think those are some of my biases you know i think about those quite a lot yeah, that's well put. Uh, those are my biases too. Uh, but I, you know, but it's like the classic question: What are your strengths? And it's like, well, I'm too humble and I work too hard because they're also. I mean, I think there's they're good things. What like, oh yeah, I mean, you like bigger data and less likely to have uh, confounded data. I think more people should like that. And I put less faith in anecdote to the point where I almost um, maybe this is a, a weakness is that I could gild the lily a lot of the times and tell a story. For instance, I had a colonoscopy debate recently. I, I've definitely seen some complications of colonoscopy that I could have told in the debate, and boom, I would have won that debate. But I felt like, no, that's not how you win the debate. You win the debate on the facts. I can't play this card. I could play it, boom, perforation, perforation, you know, but I didn't. Um, so, but, but I think that's because I don't want people to make their mind up in that stupid way. That's how other people behave. Um, and then your bias about like when human beings change the natural world and they think it'll make their lives better, but far more likely they are to make no difference at all or make it worse. That's just a fact. I think that's what people don't realize. It's not a bias, and I don't view it as a bias, because if you look in every empirical data set where you can ask that kind of question from the pretest probability of drugs to devices to behavioral interventions to other medical things to medical history to the history of Western medicine, the history of Eastern medicine, that is the enduring theme that smart, bright people, charismatic people promoted things for many years, decades, didn't work. And, you know, um, and then your last thing about freedom, I share that with you, too. Um, and that's a values thing. And why do I share that with you? I guess maybe my bias is um, the thing that brings me the greatest joy in life is the freedom to think about whatever ideas I want to think about and talk about it to whomever I want to talk about it. And that to me is an invaluable freedom. And anything that restricts that freedom, I view as uh, a non-starter like Facebook and Twitter and all those terrible platforms where um, you know, you're restricted by someone who you think doesn't even understand what they're doing because they don't really grasp the issue. Um, the last topic I wanted to talk to you about, and then I want to see what topics you have, if there's anything we didn't cover. Anthony Fauci recently has been interviewed twice, and in one interview, he just was clear that um, I, did, I never said school closure. That was That's the other guy. I mean, I never was a proponent of school closure. And then the other one, he was like, I'm not a, I never actually, I never called for a lockdown. 
Um, and then my memory of it is, and many, many video clips jogging my memory, is that he, in fact, was calling for lockdown. In fact, suggested it to the president and advocated for it. 15 days to slow the spread. He marketed it. He sold it to the American people. And he was a supporter of school closure. And when DeSantis reopened schools in April of 2020, he went on many TV shows and said that was dangerous, reckless. We have to do it with HEPA filters, et cetera. Things that turned out to not be needed because, you know, 86% of them got it anyway and most weren't vaccinated. And, you know, you could have just had schools running the whole time. Um, and I guess in my mind, the only thing I can see to justify his position is for him to say like, well, I'm not actually the decision maker. I'm just the science policy advisor, but the president decides. And I guess you could say that, but you know, you still were the one who put the seed in his ear and told him to do it, and he didn't know any better. And you're the one, I mean, just like, you know, many years ago, another imperfect analogy, Colin Powell was the one they sent to the United Nations with the weapons of mass destruction. He put his reputation on that, blew up in his face. Fauci is the Colin Powell. He put his reputation on it. Um, he was the one who sold it. Uh, if he hadn't gone on TV, I don't think there was anyone in the government. Bricks didn't have the gravitas of Fauci. He wasn't, she wasn't as well known. Um, and then somebody mentioned to me that the reason he, the closest you'll get to him to say it was a mistake is that I never did it. Um, so what are your thoughts on, I guess, the question, I guess it's really, I mean, owning owning what you did. Do we have an ethical obligation to own our beliefs? I mean, we're everyone's allowed to change their mind, but you can't tell me you didn't say it when you said, you know, that's what kills me. You, you know, I shouldn't have made the right turn there, but don't tell me you weren't screaming for me to turn off the highway. Um, so what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's long, it's long past time to tell the truth on this kind of thing. Um, and, it, you know, I think, I think anyone um, who thinks that prolonged school closures uh, were on the right side of history, uh, I think are making a mistake. And the people who called for that and, and allowed them to be prolonged, um, well, yeah, I think those people need to take some responsibility for it. Um, and of course, Fauci is not the only one. But uh, on, at least, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, it might be a good sign that at the very least, at the very least, he's he's lying about it now. <laughs> yeah. you know? um, before he wasn't even called to lie about it, and at least, at, at least now, at least now, he's saying he's acknowledging uh, either explicitly or otherwise. Uh, that maybe it wasn't such a good idea at the time, um, and you know, I'm starting to see a bit of that in Australia. You know, I, I ran I ran into an infectious disease doctor the other day, and he said, "Oh, I've been following your stuff. It's good to have an alternative point of view." And so on. And he said, "He said all that time in Australia when we were in these massive lockdowns for nine months and so on. He's like, I was barracking for the restrictions and so on. And now he's now he said, oh, we really took that a bit far, didn't we? You know, I've started to realize that we took that a bit far, um, and." For me, uh, that that's a good sign. Uh, but one of the things that, that annoys me, and I, I I sympathize with these people because they're going through kind of cognitive dissonance, right? They've been repeating this stuff for two years, and it's hard to kind of break away from it. But one of the things that really bothers me is is, is the version where people say, "Oh, now we know that it wasn't a good idea." So people say, "Oh, vaccine mandates." Oh, now we know the vaccines block transmission. It wasn't a good idea. It was like, no, it was never a good idea to ostracize people from society for being unvaccinated. That was a bad idea for all kinds of reasons, for moral reasons, for scientific reasons, for political reasons, for social reasons. It was obviously a bad idea. It's not now we know they don't block transmission. Yeah, that makes it an even worse idea. Omicron breakthrough infections, that makes it an even worse idea, but it was a bad idea to start with. And likewise, we really say, oh, now we know that cloth masks don't work. Um, all that kind of mania and like forcing people to wear cloth masks. 
that didn't really make sense. I mean, there's still people who believe that cloth masks work, right? Um, but uh, people say, oh, now we know. It's like, no. <laughs> First of all, we knew that in 2019 yeah. that they weren't that yeah. they weren't going to work. Uh, and it's not that now we know. It's that, it's that they were, it was mandates in particular were always wrong because they weren't supported by high quality evidence. Uh, because you shouldn't force people to do something when a recommendation would be fine, uh, and so on. And same thing for uh, police involvement in public health, uh, prolonged school closures, uh, uh, preventing people from meeting outdoors. It's not that now we know outdoors is safe or whatever. Yeah, it, it was always safe. I just had a student go through all the literature on outdoor transmission. There's only one case ever reported, and it was in China in 2020, wow. and that's it, you know? And it's that, well, that one wasn't even confirmed. It's not that now we know. And, and that was the one that happened to the wet market. <laughs> <laughs> That was the first one. That's how I got loose. It was in the wet bar. It was outdoor. No. Okay. Um, you know, that's really well said. And uh, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but I guess I feel the same way when people say, now we know. I was like, oh, well, let me tell you. In March of 2020, that was when I wrote an op-ed saying we should hear scientists with different views and not demonize them. That's the title instead. And the point was that maybe lockdown wasn't a great idea. And at minimum, even if you thought it was, you should be willing to, to have a dialogue with the people you thought it, who thought it didn't. And one of those people was John Ioannidis, who has a good track record and is a smart guy and is not some evil right-wing, jet blue, whatever, crazy conspiracy theory you've told yourself. And then by early spring of 2020, I knew that outdoor risk was zero. And that's why I would do all sorts of things outdoor. And if anything, I thought we should encourage outdoor behavior to try to take some of the pressure off indoor behavior and actually give people an outlet for socializing. I knew by spring that opening schools could be done totally safe because thank God Sweden had done the experiment and half of Western Europe followed their lead, at least in elementary school, and the United States didn't. And I knew that was a mistake. And I knew when the, teach when the AAP said we should reopen schools, that was the right idea. And I knew when Trump echoed it, it was the right idea. But what I didn't know was that they would change their tune just because Trump said it. And that to me blew me away. I knew cloth masks didn't work. I could read all the randomized trials to date. And I knew we should be doing more randomized trials. And Trish Greenhall and others didn't think we should. That was a mistake. I knew we should reopen, certainly by the fall, if not have already reopened by then. We had German data that showed that was safe. I knew we shouldn't have changed the uh, number of cases we look at as the pr primary statistical analysis plan of the Pfizer trial d merely to delay the product. I knew that we shouldn't have done that. Uh, that was a mistake. I didn't sign that letter. Um, I knew that when the vaccine came out that the way we prioritized the rollout was misguided, putting a 20-year-old resident ahead of an 88-year-old uh, uh, in the community. That was misguided. And then I knew the mandates were not going to do anything of good, um, either that the per it didn't provide an additional benefit to that third party, uh, and that there's a downside to imposing something on the population. And that downside is has so many spillover effects in so many domains that we have yet to live with. And then I've known that pretty much since the vaccine, I think most of our policy was that really misguided, like paying for packs of it, not doing randomized studies, um, living in fear. I mean, so when they say like, now we know better, I'm like, yeah, I I've known all along. And, uh, and like you, you know, there's a paper trail. I'm like, look, I, I got a paper trail to show you. And um, anyway, so I want to leave, give you a chance. Is there anything that's new that anything that you want to talk about that we didn't cover? This was a good dialogue. Uh, yeah. Um, so, I mean, it just, one of one of a kind of interesting kind of data point from Australia is is how quick the virus spread once we did open our borders, right? So I think an important an important takeaway message from this pandemic is if you're if you're grounded in reality, you have to accept two things. One, that this was a dangerous virus for a certain fraction of the global population. Yes, <laughs> all the, the all, yes. 
people with people with people with comorbidities and so on. It was a dangerous virus, and you also have to that uh, we did far too much intervention uh, and far too much mandatory intervention. I mean, I think I, I think those things are clear. But if you look at Australia, for example, um, yeah, so in in places like uh, UK, Europe, North America, in the first six months of the pandemic, about say five to fifteen percent of people were infected based on based on seroprevalence studies. Uh, in Australia, uh, in the six months after we opened our border, fifty percent of people got infected. So about about, about kind of ten percent per month, um, and that was with some kind of public health measures in place. Although most of the ones that were useless, you know. Um, but but you know, you can see that at the start of a pandemic, the virus can spread quite fast. Um, but that yeah, we need to focus our attention on uh, where things um, where things can make the biggest difference, and the the place where you can make the biggest difference is large indoor gatherings and especially large indoor areas where there's lots of at-risk people, you know, places like nursing homes and so on. That's where we need to focus most of our attention. Um, but but if you don't control the virus at all, sure, it can spread quite fast and that, 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 that can put a lot of pressure on your health system without immunity. But also, you know, in Australia, most people were vaccinated by the time we had that. And I think a key thing about when we stop doing major interventions in a pandemic, my own kind of cutoff for that is, you know, next time should be, you know, once that at-risk people have had a reasonable right. chance to get access to vaccination, right. Right. they uh, then basically there's there's not really a justification for further intervention uh, after that. Um, so I think that, can, that that's kind of one of the takeaways uh, of, for the next pandemic, apart from the fact that a lot of the things we did this time were were useless and harmless, harmful. Yeah, that's so well said. I'll close with just to read you a couple of paragraphs. This is from March 17th, 2020. This is the last maybe five line, five paragraphs of John's essay. One of the bottom lines is we don't know how long social distancing measures and lockdowns can be maintained without major consequences to the economy, society, and mental health. Unpredictable evolutions may ensue, including financial crisis, unrest, civil strife, war, and a meltdown of the social fabric. At a minimum, we need unbiased prevalence and incidence data for the evolving infectious load to guide decision-making. That was never done. In the most pessimistic scenario, which I do not espouse, if the, if the new coronavirus infects 60% of the global population and 1% of infected people die, that will translate into more than 40 million deaths globally, matching 1918. The vast majority of this hecatome will be people with limited life expectancies that is in contrast to 1918, where many young people died. One can only hope that, much like in 1918, life will continue. Conversely, with lockdowns of months, if not years, life largely stops. Short-term and long-term consequences are entirely unknown, and billions, not just millions of lives, may be eventually at stake. If we decide to jump off the cliff, we need some data to inform us about the rationale of such an action and the chances of landing somewhere safe. And that was the one that, you know, got him in a whole heap of trouble. Um, but now here we're facing almost double-digit inflation. We have a war in Ukraine that maybe Putin's opportunity to seize the Ukraine is in response to the weakness of the West in battling coronavirus. China is on the brink of, I don't know what they're going to do. They're going to destroy themselves um, with their zero COVID policy. And, uh, and a generation of kids in the United States has missed so much education. They're never going to make up for it. When they come to voting age, when they become 20-year-old men, I think we're going to be on the precipice of uh, unprecedented disaster. And, um, you know, the, uh, uh, his essay was in many ways really, you know, not so bad, huh? That's right. I mean, it's no secret that I'm a Unity's fan and uh, both, both the kind of attitude to science and also the, the, importance, the importance of society. 
Um, and a lot of those predictions are spot on. Uh, you know, I think the the economic effects have been have been catastrophic, and yeah, locking locking all the rich people at home uh, to work while their stocks go up and so on, uh, while screwing up global supply chains and harming the poorest of the poor, uh, we've exacerbated a crisis in inequality worldwide that's going to that's going to cause massive amounts of harm to health, among other things. You know, in addition to kind of global conflict, and uh, yeah, we we really don't talk enough about how. Uh, that that inflation and a lot of the problems in our society are driven by supply chain problems that are created by what, crazy over overly restrictive policies, uh, and that and that it was it was a it was a disaster uh, for uh, the global for rich countries to follow China into an authoritarian response to this pandemic, um, and to make matters worse, once we in rich countries followed China. Then poor countries, places in you know East Africa, West Africa, whatever, followed rich countries into lockdown, uh, which was just kind of not you know as people pointed out at the time, not the right thing uh, for those populations, and it wasn't the right thing for our populations either. Uh, especially this kind of this authoritarian version where you've got the police and the military enforcing people what to do, you're dividing society uh, and making people blame each other, uh, you're cutting people off people off um, from the things that matter most in life. Uh, and yeah, I, I I think I hope I hope it's not too late to give up on uh, democracy uh, and freedom. And in fact, you know, as 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 people who theorize about this have said, just because there's a crisis doesn't mean we should give up on our values. We shouldn't give up on um, a democratic society. We shouldn't give up on civil liberties. Uh, we shouldn't we shouldn't give up on human rights. And we shouldn't give up on give up on human pleasure and what makes life meaningful. Um, and, and when it comes to science. We shouldn't give up on de on democracy and science because if we allow people to say uh, that we should do things without appropriate evidence, uh, well, we're going to end up potentially making some very big mistakes. Uh, and as the kind of data stock up uh, and the harms arise, and as you say, uh, the kind of um, the generation of children uh, that have been just just harmed in so many ways, as those things add up, uh, it's clear that that many mistakes were made. Zebby M. Rojek, thank you so much for doing this. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, and I likewise.